Welcome to the Publishers Podcast, your place for psychiatry sound bites. Hi, I'm John Shelton, publisher of the Journal of Clinical Psychiatry. In the next 30 minutes or so, I'll bring you up to date on the important peer-reviewed research and reviews from our March 2012 issue. Let's get started. The lead article for March and the article following it delve into the treatment problems of PTSD in U.S. veterans. In the first of two articles on how to best treat U.S. veterans with PTSD, Brian Lund and colleagues report on evidence that suggests physicians are trending away from prescribing benzodiazepines for PTSD patients. The authors cite recently released Veterans Administration practice guidelines for PTSD that caution against the use of these drugs. The newer guidelines, which maintain the recommendation of the previous guidelines published in 2004, point to the lack of efficacy and significant safety concerns as the basis for their position. In their article, London colleagues examined recent trends in benzodiazepine prescribing among veterans with PTSD. After analyzing Veterans Administration data from 1999 through 2009, the authors found that the number of veterans receiving care for PTSD in the VA increased nearly threefold from approximately 170,000 veterans in 1999 to nearly half a million veterans in 2009. The frequency of benzodiazepine use declined from about 37% in 1999 to almost 31% in 2009, a relative decrease of about 17%. Average benzodiazepine doses also decreased about 15% during this period. The authors conclude that while prescribing trends are encouraging, benzodiazepine use among veterans with PTSD remains above 30%. These findings suggest an opportunity for further improvement in prescribing quality for veterans with PTSD. Now we go to another article from this same group which examines the use of drugs other than benzodiazepines for treatment of PTSD in veterans. In the second article on PTSD in veterans, Dr. Bernardi and colleagues examined the use patterns of other drugs for the treatment of PTSD in U.S. veterans in order to put into context the changes they found in benzodiazepine prescribing. The proportion of veterans receiving either SSRIs or SNRIs, which are the two first-line pharmacotherapies recommended in the clinical practice guidelines, increased from almost 50% in 1999 to 59% in 2009. In addition to the reduced benzodiazepine prescriptions seen in this group's other analysis, Antipsychotic prescriptions declined from 20% in 1999 to about 14% in 2009. Prescribing of non-benzodiazepine hypnotics tripled when Zolpidem was added to the VA national formulary in 2008. Buspirone prescribing steadily decreased, while prazosin prescribing increased nearly sevenfold. 
For more on prescribing trends in PTSD, journal subscribers can visit us online at psychiatrist.com or check their copy of the March issue for two very different thought-provoking commentaries by Bruce Capehart and David Emilidi. The next article addresses the issue of physicians eliciting the truth from their patients. It goes without saying that physicians need reliable information from their patients in order to treat them effectively. It may come as some surprise, then, to learn that until now, the issue of how honestly patients report their symptoms and medication adherence to their physicians has not been adequately addressed in depressed patients. To study this question, a group of Japanese researchers conducted a large-scale Internet survey in 2010. 2,354 participants who had received treatment for depression within the past year were identified through screening procedures among over 300,000 registrants in a commercial database. Participants were asked to complete a questionnaire regarding their treatment for depression with special focus on the patient-physician relationship. The questionnaire was successfully completed by 2,020 participants. Overall, 70% of responders reported that they had withheld the truth from their physicians. A logistic regression model found significant associations of this behavior with female sex, younger age, and a lower degree of satisfaction in mutual communication. 69% of participants were not candid about their daily activities, and 53% were not candid about their symptoms. Female participants were more likely to hide the facts concerning their adherence to prescribed medication and to hide data such as body temperature and weight. 32% of participants had discontinued treatment without consulting their physician, which again was more frequent in women, younger persons, and those who were not satisfied with communication with their physician. While these findings need to be replicated in other patient populations, the researchers found that a majority of patients with depression were reluctant to disclose the truth, which emphasizes the need for physicians to be more skeptical about patient-reported symptoms and medication adherence. Next, we hear about ARVCF haplotypes in relation to specific phenotypes in schizophrenia. To explore the possible role of the ARVCF gene as a susceptibility gene in schizophrenia, the authors investigated the relationships between haplotypes of the ARVCF gene and specific intermediate phenotypes in schizophrenia. Notable similarities exist between velocardiofacial syndrome and schizophrenia in terms of cognitive deficits and brain structural abnormalities. The authors hypothesized that specific ARVCF gene haplotypes would reduce caudate nucleus volume, fractional anisotropy, and neurocognitive functioning in schizophrenia. This study was supported by the National Healthcare Group in Singapore and the Singapore Bioimaging Consortium. Blood samples from 200 Chinese participants were genotyped. 125 of the participants had schizophrenia, and 75 were healthy controls. 
A subset of 166 participants underwent structural magnetic resonance imaging and diffusion tensor imaging and completed neuropsychological testing. A haplotype ARVCF HAP1 was found to be significantly associated with white matter integrity of the cardite nucleus and with executive functioning. These findings are consistent with known ARVCF gene effects on neurodevelopment in terms of cellular arrangement, migration, and intracellular signaling involving the striatum. These processes may involve interactions with other brain networks, such as the prefrontal cortex, to result in observed cognitive changes. These findings underscore the importance of imaging genetic studies to elucidate the genetic influences underlying intermediate phenotypes, such as brain white matter integrity and cognitive functioning in complex neurobehavioral disorders. We move next to a study of trait resilience as a predictor of PTSD symptom severity. The objective of this study was to investigate whether trait resilience has predictive value for development of PTSD and to examine whether resilience can mediate the relationship between childhood trauma and post-traumatic recovery. To this end, the authors conducted a prospective pilot study in which 70 acutely traumatized subjects, all with PTSD, were assessed for PTSD symptom severity at three time points within the first three months post-trauma. A subsample of 12 subjects additionally underwent a functional four Tesla magnetic resonance imaging scan two to four months post-trauma. The study was sponsored by the Canadian government, the Alberta Heritage Foundation, and the Volkswagen Foundation. The authors found that a significant relationship existed between resilience and emotion regulation areas of the brain during trauma recall in the acutely traumatized sample. Resilience was established as a significant predictor of PTSD symptom severity and it mediated the influence of childhood trauma on post-traumatic adjustment. Our next article provides new information on the use of web-based assessments of depression. Web-based assessments in clinical practice offer several potential advantages over paper and pencil assessments, such as patient convenience, reduction of missing data, cost reduction, automatic scoring, and generation of large databases. The investigators in this study evaluated the acceptability, reliability, and validity of web-based administration of a depression scale among outpatients. The study included 53 depressed patients who completed a web-based and paper version of the clinically useful depression outcome scale. Patients were also asked to complete a brief survey of the acceptability of the two modes of administration. The result showed a significantly high correlation between the web-administered and paper-administered versions. Patients also reported significantly high levels of satisfaction with the Internet administration, and they preferred this method of outcome monitoring versus the paper and pencil assessment in the office.
The authors conclude that the web-based scale produced positive results. They assert that the availability of a reliable, valid, and acceptable web-based system for measuring outcome can enhance capabilities for tracking the longitudinal course of this chronic disorder. The next study investigated whether gene-temperament interactions distinguish between bipolar 1 and 2 disorders. Whether bipolar 2 disorder is a distinct disorder or simply a milder form of bipolar 1 disorder has been debated. Family, twin, and adoption studies have provided robust evidence of genetic contributions. And heritable temperaments are also believed to contribute to the susceptibility to bipolar disorders. In this study, a group of Taiwanese researchers sought to clarify the relationship between bipolar 1 and 2 disorders. Two depression rating scales and a personality questionnaire that assessed dimensions of novelty-seeking and harm avoidance were completed by 314 participants, consisting of healthy controls and patients with either bipolar 1 or 2 disorder. All participants were ethnic Han Chinese living in Taiwan. Testing was also performed to determine which participants carried study-specific genotypes. The researchers found significant main effects for the 5-HTT-LPR polymorphism, novelty-seeking, and harm avoidance. And a significant interaction effect was found between harm avoidance and 5-HTT-LPR genotypes in distinguishing between bipolar 1 and 2 patients. Bipolar 1 patients with the long allele at 5-HTT-LPR had lower harm avoidance scores than did bipolar 2 patients. However, the difference was not significant after multiple test correction. All data suggest a distinction between bipolar 1 and 2 disorders. This study provides initial evidence that 5-HTT-LPR genotype might moderate the association between harm avoidance and bipolar 1 and 2 disorders. There appears to be unique differences in the gene-temperament interaction of bipolar 1 and 2 patients. The next article looks at the pharmacokinetics of dexmethylphenidate. The authors evaluated whether the central pharmacokinetics of dopamine transporter occupancy match the peripheral pharmacokinetic properties of dexmethylphenidate when using long-acting oral doses, known to be efficacious in adults with ADHD. The dexmethylphenidate in this study was formulated using the spheroidal oral drug absorption system. 18 healthy volunteers were included in this study, which was sponsored by Novartis. The subjects underwent positron emission tomography imaging before and after administration of the drug. Three groups each received one of three study-specified doses before PET imaging, which occurred at intervals between 1 and 14 hours after dosing. Transporter occupancy was calculated by standard methods. Consistent with a medium-acting methylphenidate compound, results showed that both plasma levels and dopamine transporter occupancies of dexmethylphenidate peaked at 8 hours and declined thereafter. 
dopamine transporter occupancies, but not plasma levels, were consistent with a rapid onset of action. These results confirm the study hypothesis that central dopamine transporter occupancy parallels peripheral pharmacokinetic findings in orally administered long-acting dexmethylphenidate in later hours after administration. The next article reports on a dosing study of aripipazole as augmentation therapy. The objective of this study was to explore whether patients who are unresponsive to low doses of aripipazole as augmentation therapy would experience more effective results and better tolerability of aripipazole at higher doses. The study was sponsored by Bristol-Myers Squibb. The investigators conducted a randomized, placebo-controlled, sequential parallel comparison study of two dose regimens of aripipazole as augmentation therapy in patients with major depressive disorder who were not responding adequately to SSRI or SNRI antidepressants. 221 patients were randomized to placebo or to aripipazole 2 milligrams a day for 30 days, followed by a dose increase to 5 milligrams a day for another 30 days. Efficacy was examined on the basis of improvement on various depression scales. Both regimens were well tolerated but provided only marginal benefit. In 54 patients who received aripipazole 2 milligrams a day, the response rate was 18.5%. Among 39 non-responders whose dose was increased to 5 milligrams a day, the response rate was 12.8%. While the benefit of low-dose aripipazole augmentation was modest, the 5 milligram per day dose was effective in a few patients who did not respond adequately to 2 milligrams a day. Clinicians who wished to try aripipazole augmentation therapy in patients with partial response to antidepressants might consider starting with a low dose only if the patient is especially worried about side effects and rapid response is not urgent. The dose can always be increased later on the basis of efficacy and tolerability. Next, a meta-analysis questions whether open-label studies among youth with bipolar disorder provide a valid estimate of treatment efficacy. While the double-blind, randomized, placebo-controlled trial design is the gold standard, open-label studies are useful for planning randomized clinical trials because they can provide estimates of the efficacy, safety, and tolerability of a medication. What remains unclear, though, is the extent to which open-label studies in pediatric bipolar disorder provide a valid estimate of treatment efficacy. The authors conducted a meta-analysis to bring this topic to light. The study was sponsored by the Pediatric Psychopharmacology Council Fund. After systematically collecting and analyzing data, The authors found similarities in the treatment effects between open-label studies and randomized placebo-controlled studies in youth with bipolar disorder. Their findings indicate that open-label studies are useful predictors of the potential safety and efficacy of a given compound in the treatment of pediatric bipolar disorder. 
The pooled effect sizes for both open-label and double-blind study designs were statistically significant. The authors assert that open-label studies can provide valid estimates of the treatment effects that would be captured in a randomized, double-blind, placebo-controlled trial and help inform whether such a trial is worth pursuing. Next, we move to an analysis of gene variants associated with treatment response in schizophrenia patients. The authors of this study analyzed whether response to risperidone treatment would be impacted by some of the same single nucleotide polymorphisms, or SNPs, as those associated with response to ilipiridone treatment. Risperidone and ilipiridone are similar in that both are benzizoxazole drugs and lack a tricyclic structure, but they have a multiple receptor binding profile like other second-generation antipsychotics. Making a connection between the two compounds would represent an advancement in the ability to predict response to antipsychotics. Such information might also allow clinicians to reduce or eliminate the possibility of exposing their patients to ineffective medications and associated adverse events. The authors conducted a retrospective pharmacogenomic analysis sponsored by Eli Lilly. Six SNPs previously reported to be associated with response to iliparidone were examined in 145 patients who responded to 12 weeks of risperidone therapy. Results showed that two of the six SNPs previously associated with iliparidone response were also associated with risperidone response. These data, combined with those from other similar analyses, may help to identify patients for whom iliparidone and risperidone may be appropriate treatments. The authors call for similar studies using other atypical antipsychotics to determine the degree to which one or more of these SNPs serve as generalized indicators of antipsychotic responsiveness. In our next article, differences are revealed in how interpersonal traumas versus non-interpersonal traumas affect the nature and course of PTSD symptoms. Survivors of interpersonal traumas, such as assaults, tend to have higher rates of PTSD than those who experience other traumatic events like accidents or natural disasters. However, PTSD is a complex disorder and includes a diverse range of fear-based and general dysphoric symptoms. Little is known about differences in symptom profile of survivors of different types of trauma or how those symptom profiles may change over time. The authors examined PTSD symptom data from 715 traumatic injury survivors admitted to four hospitals across Australia. PTSD symptoms were assessed in participants at 3, 12, and 24 months after their injuries. The study was supported by a National Health and Medical Research Council program grant. Multivariate analyses of variants revealed significant differences between the two study groups in overall severity of PTSD symptoms at each of three time points. Survivors of interpersonal trauma 
demonstrated significantly higher scores for 14 PTSD symptoms at three months after injury and for only six symptoms at 24 months after injury. Symptoms for which differences persisted were the PTSD unique symptoms more associated with fear and threat. The authors concluded that interpersonal trauma results in more severe PTSD symptoms in the early aftermath of trauma. Differences between trauma groups become more specific over time, and survivors of interpersonal trauma are more likely to have ongoing problems with fear and threat-based responses. By paying particular attention to these difficulties through the use of techniques such as exposure therapy, clinicians might achieve better treatment outcomes for these individuals. The next study addressed insomnia as a risk for depression. The authors sought to discover whether insomnia is a factor related to the presence or persistence of depression, and if so, which component of insomnia is associated with depression. To this end, the authors conducted a longitudinal study using an anonymous self-rated survey questionnaire. The study was conducted over a two-year interval among a rural population cohort in Japan. Over 1,500 participants were evaluated for insomnia and depressive symptoms at baseline and then again after two years. The study was supported by the Japanese government. Study results show that depression and insomnia at baseline were significantly associated with the presence of depression at follow-up. Measures of insomnia symptoms such as poor quality of sleep, difficulty initiating sleep, and daytime dysfunction were significantly associated with the presence of depression at follow-up. In addition, the new appearance or continued existence of depression at follow-up was related to persistent insomnia. The authors conclude that insomnia at high severity level could be a risk factor for the presence or persistence of depression in long-term prognosis. We move next to a study that investigated the associations between HIV infection and psychiatric disorders. HIV infection is associated with an increased prevalence of several psychiatric disorders. People with HIV and psychiatric disorders have high rates of HIV transmission, low adherence to HIV treatment, and poor prognosis. Estimates of the prevalence of psychiatric disorders among HIV-positive adults are lacking, and few of the available studies have stratified their analyses by sex. A group from the New York State Psychiatric Institute studied the prevalence of psychiatric disorders among HIV-positive and HIV-negative adults stratified by sex. They looked at the increase in risk of a psychiatric disorder as a function of the interaction of sex and HIV status. Face-to-face -face interviews were done between 2004 and 2005 with participants in NISARC Wave 2, a large nationally representative sample of U.S. adults that included almost 35,000 participants. The researchers found that HIV status was significantly more strongly associated with psychiatric disorders in men than in women. 
HIV-positive men had a higher prevalence than HIV-negative men of most psychiatric disorders. However, HIV-positive women were not more likely than HIV-negative women to have psychiatric disorders. The findings highlight the need for interventions to address the convergence of HIV and psychiatric disorders. Routine psychiatric assessments might help to identify disorders in HIV-positive individuals that might otherwise be undetected in community practice. The next study expands our understanding of agitation in nursing home residents with dementia. The authors studied 193 residents of seven nursing homes in a randomized, controlled, observational, cross-sectional study of how environmental attributes, personal attributes, and presentation of a group of stimuli impacted nursing home residents with diagnosed dementia. Data were obtained on cognitive functioning, performance of activities of daily living, self-identity factors, and engagement. Environmental attributes such as noise and lighting and direct observations of agitation were recorded. Levels for both agitation and engagement were assessed for each presented stimulus, including a control condition. This study, which was sponsored by the National Institutes of Health, showed that both personal and stimulus attributes concurrently and independently predicted levels of agitation, a combination not reported in prior research. Since agitated behaviors can take an emotional toll on caregivers, the authors stressed the importance of research to further develop interventions and stimuli to combat such behaviors. Their findings provide empirical support for the use of social engagement interventions for reducing agitation. Future studies should examine the impact of interaction of stimuli with level of cognitive decline and withdrawal on the level of agitation. Our final peer-reviewed article this month is online only, available to subscribers at psychiatrist.com. Treating schizophrenia patients can be difficult as well as costly. Assertive community treatment is an intervention that could potentially improve both the quality and cost-effectiveness of care for these patients. In this article, assertive community treatment is compared to standard care for schizophrenia. This study was done in Hamburg, Germany, and follows a recent trial of assertive community treatment in the United States that showed favorable results. Incremental cost-effectiveness and quality-adjusted life years were measured and revealed significantly lower costs for inpatients and higher quality of life. The implementation of a psychotherapeutically-oriented, schizophrenia-specific, and experienced assertive community treatment team led to an improved patient outcome with reduced need for inpatient care. Despite the introduction of a rather costly treatment team, this therapy was cost-effective with regard to improved quality of life at comparable yearly costs. This month, we feature a case report about nocturnal involuntary grinding and clenching of teeth during sleep, 
a parasomnia that reportedly causes many dental and oral problems. It is also a reported side effect of SSRIs and may lead to a compromised ability of patients to achieve or maintain therapeutic doses of SSRIs. I'm sure you'll want to read this report on the successful monitoring of this problem without a change in the patient's medication regimen. In addition, please check out our letters, book reviews, and interactive activities from our CME Institute. Join us online for all this and much, much more from the March issue of the Journal of Clinical Psychiatry. Thanks for listening. This is John Shelton signing off. I hope you will join me next month for the Publishers Podcast, your place for psychiatry soundbites.